All right, we come now to the preaching of the Word of God. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Romans 5. Romans 5 this morning. And as you're turning there, we're going to take some time to call on the name of the Lord, and we're going to ask God for help in these next minutes as we look at God's Word. I want us to be reminded that we need the help of God's Holy Spirit, both to preach God's Word, to understand God's Word, and most of all, to receive God's Word, to love God's Word. And so let's ask for that this morning from our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today and we thank you, God, for your grace. Lord, you have stretched out your hand in salvation and you have made a name for yourself in Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners, Lord. You are the one who's brought in an everlasting righteousness, God, and you've given it as a free gift to your people. And Lord, we bless your name today as those who have been washed clean by the blood of Christ. Lord, we love you today because you first loved us. And we ask you, Lord, for grace as we come to your word. Lord, we just sang it to you, God, grace to trust you more. God, give us grace today and help us to grow in the knowledge and in the likeness and in the love of Jesus. God, thank you so much, Lord, for your word, God, for your instrument that you use to reveal yourself, to make us more like Christ. And we ask for your help to understand it. We ask for your help to love it, Lord. We ask, God, that you would help us to believe it. We pray that your word would run to and fro this morning in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I want to ask you this question as we head to Romans 5. Just something for you to ponder. And the question is this, what is normal? What is normal and how do you decide what's normal? In other words, you know, what's normal and what's the baseline? How did you get to that definition? And I just want you to think about this, of two different destinations that you arrive at the answer to that question, uh, whether you start with looking at the world or looking at the word. And so just think with me for a moment that if all you look at is this world, this broken world, then your definition of normal is going to be off. Can everybody hear me? Sorry, I thought, Kim, you were giving me the sign. Uh, I was like, she's like, go up, go up. Okay. Um, if you, all you look at is the world, then your definition of normal is going to be wrong. So think with me for a moment. If you just, with a naturalistic, you know, unbelieving wor- you know, uh, worldview, if you just enter into the study of this world, what you're going to conclude is that sin and death is just part of what it means to be human. It's just natural. It's just normal. If you sin, no big deal. It's, it's just it's just part of being human. Death is part of uh, normal you know, patterns in this world. And one of the things that we're going to see in Romans 5 is that framework is going to be shifted. The Apostle Paul is going to tell us death and sin are not normal at all in God's world. They're intrusions into God's world. Romans 5 is going to tell us that there was a point in time where sin entered into God's good creation and death through sin. And Paul is going to give us this glorious framework, this expansive framework that we can understand all of human history and human destiny, and he's going to do it through this double lens of Adam and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope this morning, my prayer for you this morning is that you'll be more and more convinced by the time that we're done just how fundamental this Romans 5 framework is, the lens of of viewing this world through the lens of Adam and Jesus, Adam and Christ. That's where we're headed This morning, let's read God's word together. Romans 5, beginning in verse 12, and we'll we'll read through all the way through the end of chapter 5. Verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning 
was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more had the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is God's word. To Grace Community Church this morning. Jake, if I have a buzz in my voice, you're welcome to tweet that. Um, our focus this morning is going to be on verses 18 and 19. Okay, uh, We're going to zone in on verses 18 and really one phrase, even more than that, even one phrase in verse 18, justification and life. I want you to know what that means. I want you to love it as a Christian. I want you to feel gifted, graced, and empowered by the gospel of Jesus today, justification and life. That's where we're headed. But I want to make sure that we understand the context in Romans 5. So we're going to back up for just a moment, and we're going to work our way slowly to that phrase in verse 18. What's Paul been talking about in Romans 5? What's the context here? Well, in the passage immediately preceding what we just read, Paul is talking about peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to, to, to talk about reconciliation with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You can see that in Romans 5.1. You can see it again in Romans 5.11. He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about salvation through Jesus. And then in verse 12, we get a therefore. Therefore, and what we would expect is if this is what you were talking about before... And then you say, therefore, you're going to continue talking about that same thing and expanding it even further. You're going to continue talking about peace with God and reconciliation through our Lord Jesus Christ. But instead, what happens in verse 12 is Paul inserts this comparison and he begins to talk about Adam. And I want you to think about why. The entrance of sin into this world through one man. So we're talking about salvation in Jesus Reconciliation with God through Christ, therefore, and Paul says, Adam, Adam. And then he enters into this extensive parallel and a comparison and a contrast that runs to the end of chapter 5. And just the flow of that tells us something important about Paul's gospel. Just the flow of that, therefore, Adam. Paul wants us to understand something about Jesus. That theme is not changing. Still talking about peace with God. Still talking about reconciliation with God. But there's something that Christians need to understand about Adam that's going to help us understand reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. And so think the apostles' thoughts after him. He says, if you want to know about Jesus, you need to know something about Adam. If you want to know something about Christ, the last Adam, you need to know something about the first Adam. That's, that's where Paul's going in Romans 5. And we say this in a lot of ways, you know, around the church. If you want to know the good news, you need to know something of the bad news that the good news addresses. And that's because there's a, there's a fittingness to it. Okay, There's a fittingness to it. The contours of sin 
and the contours of salvation, they fit each other. In other words, think, think of it like this. If sin is like a disease and the gospel is the remedy to a disease, then understanding the nature of that disease, what it's doing to the body, helps you understand and appreciate the, what this remedy gives to you, what this remedy addresses. And that's, that's the flow of Romans 5. This is why the Apostle Paul pivots to Adam in the middle of him talking about Jesus. Notice in verse 14 that Paul explicitly refers to Adam as a type of Christ. That word is in the ESV text. Adam was a type of the one who was to come. A type. Now that word, type, refers to the mark that is made on a softer object when it's struck by a harder object. When that happens and an imprint is made, that imprint is the type. Okay, it, it points to something else, that, that something else has left its mark. That imprint is the type. In Scripture, types refer to copies, images, patterns that point beyond themselves. Okay, that's what types are in the Bible. And they actually function as forms of prophecy in Scripture. In other words, there are direct prophecies about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. His name is going to be called Emmanuel. There are direct prophecies of this is going to happen and then it happens. But there are also indirect forms of prophecy like types that the sovereign God has scattered all throughout human history that echo forward, that point us forward to his son, Jesus. And these types are all over the Bible. Okay? They're copies, imprints, and patterns that, that point beyond themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. Just to give you an example of these, uh, they're all over the place in the Old Testament. The temple is a type. It pointed beyond itself. The priesthood was a type. Jesus fulfilled that. The sacrifices were types. The feast days were types. King David was a type. Moses was a type. Pointed beyond himself. And we could go on and on and on. But in Romans 5, Paul wants you to understand Adam was a type of the one to come. There's something about Adam's relationship to God and the conditions and the circumstances that he is in that points us forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is a side comment. Okay, and we'll come back to um, this Adam-Christ parallel. But think I do, I do want you to feel a warning okay, uh, about something really specific. It's if Adam is a type of Jesus Christ, think about how warned we should feel as Christians of tampering with Genesis 1 through 3. Think about that. In other words, if Adam is explicitly named by the Apostle Paul, Adam is a type of Jesus Christ. Think of how warned we should be. Of tampering with Genesis 1 through 3. Now, sometimes you hear, you know, it said really wrongly that as Christian, as long as you believe in Jesus, you can believe whatever you want about creation. As, I mean, as long as you get the gospel right, as long as you get Jesus right, you can believe whatever you want about Genesis 1 through 3. Everything's on the table. Everything's fair game. And yeah, there's a right and a wrong way to approach it. But everything's within bounds. Okay. I want you to think about how wrongly that is and how warned you should feel, okay? Because this is how types work. If you get Adam wrong, guess what you have set yourself up to do? Because of that relationship between Adam and Jesus, you get Adam wrong, you have set yourself on the trajectory to get Jesus wrong. Why? Because Adam is a type of Jesus Christ. Adam is a type of Christ. All right, we're going to focus in now on verses 18 and 19. And really why is because 18 and 19 really, really finish off what Paul starts in verse 12. In other words, in verse 12, he starts into this comparison. Before he even finishes the comparison in verse 12, he goes into this big parenthetical statement, really two of them, that run from verse 13 through verse 17. Then he comes back to his argument in verse 18 about the disobedience of one man 
and the obedience of one man. He sets them in contrast. He points us to two different men, two different humanities, two different effects, two different destinies. And so verse 18 and 19 really summarize everything that's going on in this Adam-Christ parallel. And so I want us to start with zoning in on these two men. Okay? Adam first. Romans 5 shows us that Adam was not just the first man. Okay? And I don't mean to deny that. Adam was undeniably the first man. Adam didn't have parents. He was formed from the dust of the earth by the breath of Yahweh. Okay? Adam was a, a special creation of God. He was the first man. But Romans 5 says he's more than that. Okay? He's not just um, our biological head of the human race. Romans 5 shows us that Adam was a God-ordained representative of the whole human race. He didn't just come first. He represented everybody who followed him. Okay? He was in a special relationship to God in a special arrangement. Theologians have referred to this as the federal headship of Adam, which is just a Latin way of referring to the covenant. He was the covenant head. In other words, there was, he was God's chosen representative to represent the entire human race. Now, I do want to point you back to something about a year and a half ago. Ryan preached through the same passage in Romans 5. Uh, and, and we can have somebody put the link of that in, in the group me or something. You could go back and listen to that. And Ryan preached on original sin. Okay? That Adam's sin was imputed to the entire human race. And you were condemned before you actually ever committed a, your first sin because you are in this lineage of Adam. It's the imputation of Adam's sin. And I commend you to, to go dig into that sermon. He hits original sin and this passage in a different way than what we're going at it this morning. But I want you to understand this. You won't understand these gospel gifts until you really get. It's not just that Adam was the first man. He's in this special relationship with God and with the entire human race. He's the covenant head. And you can see this in several ways in this chapter. There's two different truths that are going back and forth. One truth is representation. And the other truth, you could call it solidarity. Okay? In other words, representation. There's something that happens to one man, the representative. And because the entire human race is in solidarity with this representative, the, that thing is imputed to the entire human race. Okay? And you see that in Adam. Through one man's trespass, condemnation is counted to all men. Through the disobedience of one man, many were made sinners in the language of uh, verse 19. So Romans 5 tells us that when Adam sinned, his sin was counted to the entire human race. Why? Because Adam is a federal head. He's a covenant mediator. In other words, there's a special covenant arrangement between God, Adam, and all of his offspring, which tells us something really important about Genesis 3. Something really important about Genesis 3. You ever wonder why so much is made of Adam's sin and not Eve's sin? You ever wonder that? I mean, she is the one chronologically who sinned first, right? And then she gave to her husband and he ate. In other words, why is there such a focus on Adam's sin being the gateway to the entire human race? Because Adam was in a relationship that Eve wasn't in to the entire human race. And that no other man has ever been besides Jesus to the entire human race. In other words, Romans 5 tells us something backwards. Reading backwards back into Genesis 3. Genesis 3 was not just about a generic sin. Genesis 3 was the breaking of the covenant of works by the one God chose to be our representative. And I want you to understand that this morning. In Genesis 3, our champion failed to obey God. Our representative fell on his face. He fell. Our king, the covenant mediator, 
Adam was a king in the Garden of Eden. He was charged by God to take dominion in the whole world, but he was dethroned by sin in Eden. And when Adam, the representative of the entire human race, was banished from the presence of God, all of his offspring, all of his citizens that follow him were banished with him. In other words, his departure and his punishment was counted to us, even though we weren't even born yet. All of us are affected by his defeat because of his special relationship to God. Okay, Genesis 3 is not just about a generic sin. It's the fall of our covenant head that plunges the whole created universe into sin and death. That's Adam. But Adam's not the only chosen representative in Romans 5. The counterpart to Adam is the Lord Jesus Christ through the obedience of one man. Verse 19. And the same is true about Jesus. Okay? Jesus is not just a perfect man. He's not just a sinless man. Though he is that. He is perfect and sinless. He is a chosen man. He is God's chosen representative to represent all of his people. And that's the thing that you have to get about Romans 5. That it's not just you and God. Okay, You're not just this individual. There, you are in a covenant with God right now. Okay? And you have a representative before God right now. In fact, that's true of you before you ever took your first breath. This, this, this Romans 5 lens, this Adam Christ lens, gives us a glimpse of these two covenant heads. Adam represented his people. Jesus is the ordained representative of his people. With the same relationship, just like Adam's sin is imputed to all of his people, Jesus' righteousness is counted to all of his people. Why? Because there's a special covenant arrangement between God, Jesus, and all of his offspring. In other words, Romans 5 calls us to note the absolute distinctiveness of these two men. The whole human race... And all of human history can be viewed through the connection either to Adam or to Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says, Adam was the first Adam. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 45. And then he says this, Jesus is the last Adam. Now think about that. That's kind of weird, right? There are a lot of men who are born into this world after Jesus. You were. You know, a lot of people were born after Jesus, but Jesus is the last Adam. In other words, think the, think the, you know, think the text through. Adam was the first Adam. There's not anybody mentioned in between, and Jesus is the last Adam. Nobody comes after him. In other words, these are the only two representatives of the human race. The first Adam and the last Adam. Thomas Goodwin, Puritan pastor. He gives a famous illustration of this truth of union with Adam, union with Christ. And he does it with an image of two giants who stand before God, Adam and Jesus. Each giant representing a group of people. Each giant has this large belt around his waist with a bunch of tiny hooks attached to the belt. And everyone who has ever lived is hanging on one of those belts. On Adam's belt are those who are still dead in their sins. And on Jesus' belt are those who have been justified through faith in Christ. Notice that God deals with every human being in one of two ways. In one of two ways. Romans 5 is telling you that you are either in Adam... And you are condemned, you are condemned and, and, and dead, or you are in Jesus, you are in Christ, and you're justified and alive. You are not simply an individual. Either you are in the covenant of works with Adam as your head, as a condemned sinner, or you in the, you're in the covenant of grace with Jesus as your head, and you are a justified sinner. This is one of the ways where the Bible just brings just simplified clarity to this world. 
Two paths. How many times have you seen that in the Bible? Two paths. Wisdom and folly. The, 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 the path to destruction and the way that leads to life. you got two paths, two ways of relating to God. Adam and Jesus. And this principle of solidarity is universal. In other words, if you're connected to Adam, there's no undoing you know, the effects. You're condemned and dead. And the counterpart is true. If you're connected to Jesus, the, the, the effects are unbreakable. You're justified and you're alive. And this is how he says it in verse 19. By one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And probably the best summary of this truth is in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. And it says it so simply. In Adam, all die. In Adam, all die. How many die? Everybody dies if you're in Adam. And then Paul goes on to say this. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. If you're in Adam, it's certain death. But if you're in Jesus, it's certain life, eternal life. It's the perfect overthrow of Adam's failure. So we have these two men who stand before God, who represent the entire human race. And then in verse 18, I want us to really focus on the effects of what these two men, what they impute to their uh their group, the, 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 the two humanities that they represented. So we come to this phrase in verse 18 that describes the work of Christ as twofold. Okay? Justification and life. And before we get there, I want us to see the counterpart in Romans 5. That's what Jesus gives to his people, justification and life. And I want us to focus for a moment on what Adam gives to his people. And that's condemnation and death. And you see that running throughout Romans 5. Adam gives condemnation and death. Jesus gives justification and life. Now, I want to encourage you to learn to think in these two categories. Okay? One is judicial. And the other category is moral or spiritual. Okay? In other words... Um, one has to do one category has to do with your legal standing before God, and the other category has to do with your ability to live in a way that pleases God. The first is you, you know your legal status, the second is your nature. You gotta learn to think in these two categories because the Bible is bouncing back and forth between these two categories all the time, and justification and life are examples of two, these two different categories, judicial and spiritual. Sin leaves us in, in, in a depraved state, but you can say more than that. It's, two, it's twofold depravity. It's twofold depravity. Judicially, we are condemned in Adam. Sin, and this is easy to understand, right? When you sin, you, am, you amass a sinful record, a record of debt that makes you legally guilty before God. And the judicial sentence is you're condemned because your record is guilty. That's legally, that's your legal status. You are condemned as a sinner before God. And that's easy enough. But the second piece of this is more offensive to our nature. Because that's not all that's true of Christians is they have sinned. Romans 5 tells us that all who are united to Adam, they're dead. Death has entered into this world. This is why it looks normal all around you. Because it's, it, it, it universally you know, proceeds from those who are connected to Adam. And so judicially, sinners are condemned. Spiritually, those who are in Adam are dead. You know that about yourself? It's not just that you do bad things. It's at the very root of who you are. There is not life. There is death. 
The way that scripture talks about this is in Ephesians 2. We were dead in our transgressions and sins, walking according to the course of this world. Wait a second. Are we dead or are we walking? Exactly. This is that spiritual death. No ability to obey God. No power to please God. This is why you know, sinners have this deep-seated hostility, Romans 8, 7, and, and don't submit to God. Why? Because there's death. We're dead. It's not just that we've done bad things. It's who we are. This is why we don't just need forgiveness. We need our whole nature renewed. The twofold state of sin leaves us needing in desperate need of a twofold salvation. We need our record wiped clean, but that's not all we need. We need from the very root of who we are, our hearts, we need to be renewed and born again by the grace of God. So the, you see these two categories. The effects of sin are twofold. And Jesus is the only one that can save us from this twofold state of sin. And he does it with twofold grace. And this is where we come to this phrase in verse 18. He does it with twofold grace, justification and life. I hope you love this. This is what he does. Just like there's a judicial and spiritual shape to sin, there's a judicial and spiritual moral shape to the gospel. And I want you to love that. I want you to love it and understand it. I want you to know what God has done for your soul. Jesus delivers his people from condemnation and death by giving us justification and life. Judicially, he gives us a new standing before God. He declares us righteous. We get a new record. This is what Christ does. Our sins, he doesn't remember any of them. Cast them into the depths of the sea. Treads, treads over them like a mighty warrior. Our sins are done. He takes away the record. We get a new standing before God, judicially. But it's justification and life. Spiritually, he makes us a new creation. He gives us a new heart. It's not just one of these things. It's both. It's justification and life. Righteousness and life. Paul tells us in verse 18 that those things come to us, both of them, through the obedience of Jesus. Through the obedience of one man. Our verse 18 says, through one act of righteousness. Verse 19, through one man's obedience. And so think about it. Just like the disobedience of Adam brought the curse on all he represented. The obedience of Jesus brings the blessing on all he represents. This is how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15, 21. As by a man came death. By man has come also the resurrection from the dead. These are the two men who stand before God. One brought death into the world and the other brought resurrection life into this world. Adam and Jesus. I want to dial down on both of these gifts for just a moment. Justification and life. Jesus Christ gives his people righteousness. Justification. Those come from the same Greek you know, word group. To be justified is to be gifted righteousness. And Jesus gives all of his people the free gift of righteousness. Justification. To receive the free gift of righteousness is to be justified. To be justified is to be legally declared right with God. Maybe one of the most important things for you to understand about justification is that it belongs in the judicial category. Not the transformative moral category, the judicial category. It is a judicial verdict that is rendered on, for all those who are united to Jesus Christ. That God the judge in the courtroom of heaven renders a legal, unbreakable, and eternal verdict to all who have faith in Jesus Christ. He declares us righteous justified in the sight of a holy God. Romans 5 shows us that this, this judicial verdict 
only becomes ours through the obedience of one man. Is justification, you know, by works? Well, it depends on what you mean. It's through the work of one man. Has nothing to do with your works. But, but that righteous verdict was secured by the obedience, the flawless, perfect obedience of one man, Jesus Christ. Our works never, ever enter the courtroom in our favor as it relates to justification. They're completely excluded. The only favorable works that are brought into the courtroom on our behalf are the works of obedience of Jesus Christ. The one man's obedience. This gift of righteousness has been referred to as an alien righteousness. That was one of Luther's favorite ways of describing the doctrine of justification as an alien righteousness. And by that word, don't think outer space, alien. Think outside of me. It's not inside of me. Something is outside of me. The righteous record of Jesus Christ and it's gifted to me and it's mine. I possess it, but it didn't come from me. It's like a righteous garment that was given to me. The flawless obedience of Jesus comes from outside of you. One of, one of the, my favorite ways of describing this is in Romans 4 5. We are told that God, listen, he justifies the ungodly. You ever thought about that phrase? He justifies the ungodly. In other words, there would be nothing surprising or shocking at all if God justified the godly. I mean, everything in God's nature is just, if you don't sin, he just says you didn't sin. If you are godly, he says you're godly. If you're righteous, he renders you righteous. He just pronounces the verdict that is. But in the gospel, God justifies the ungodly. How much time you ever spent thinking about this reality that the verdict that God renders for Christians is completely contrary to their record? In other words, the record screams guilty, but the gospel says justified. That's the gift of grace. Now, how in the world can this happen? Because it's not about our obedience. It's about the obedience of one man. Jesus Christ given to us as a free gift. This is, the, this is why God justifies the ungodly. So we have to learn as Christians to cling to that righteousness that is outside of us. It's outside of us. We're the ungodly ones that God renders justified through the work of Christ. The Apostle Paul made it his aim to cling to that alien righteousness to the end of his life. And we need to be warned about that. You know, that we believe the gospel, we know we're sinners, we trust in Jesus, we cling to that gospel. But Paul says, no, no, to the very end of my life, I want to be found by Jesus Christ. I want to be found by him, not having a righteousness of my own. This is what he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. That comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Now, what a reminder to us. You know, maybe you've been a Christian for 10 years and you're growing in, you know, sanctification and you're growing in obedience. And maybe you're, you face this temptation to like, man, uh, before I got saved, I didn't have any righteousness. But man, I'm kind of getting better, you know, at certain things in the Christian life. And I might have a little bit of righteousness now. And Paul says, nope. I, when Jesus rips the sky wide open, when Jesus returns uh, to judge the world in righteousness, I want to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. From the beginning to the end of the Christian life is that clinging, trusting in the righteous record of Jesus and not our own. Justification. Jesus gives his people justification, but not only justification. Verse 18 says justification and life. Jesus also gives his people life. Not just a new record, but a new heart. The life of God in the soul of man. The resurrection life of Jesus Christ. 
Life as it was meant to be lived. In other words, this is normal. This is normal in God's world. What is normal in God's world is righteousness and life, not condemnation, sin, and death. This is what God created good and even very good. Life. Jesus gives his people life. Romans 6 verse 4 gives us some imagery that when we were saved... And this, you know, this is true of all of us. You, you don't know everything that happens to you when you get saved. You know it's good and you love God and you praise God for it. But God's word begins to explain, man, this happened to you. This is what the spirit of God did in your life. And one of those images that we get in Romans 6 is, is the dethroning or the breaking of the regime of death that happened in your life. And Romans 6, 4 says it this way, that when Jesus was raised from the dead, Christians were raised to walk in newness of life. Now, how could you ever say that? Jesus was raised from the dead 2,000 years ago. Union with Christ. You remember that principle in Romans 5? What happens to the representative happens to his people. When Jesus was raised, he gave us life. We were raised to walk in newness of life. That's the real you. In Christ, you are alive, not dead. In Christ, life reigns, not dead, not anymore. Sin doesn't reign anymore. Grace reigns because Jesus, through the obedience of one man, the many were made righteous. Christians are the, the only ones in the world of death that are raised to walk in newness of life. This is a gift of the gospel. Before we were dead, we had no power to obey God, no ability to love God, no, no desire to serve God. But through the gospel, we have a new nature. We've been born again. Been born again. Nothing less than a spiritual resurrection has happened in the life of every Christian. You're not who you once were. Why? Because Jesus gave you life. Jesus gave you life. Now, this is not perfection, and we'll come back to that later, but it means you have a pulse. You are alive. You're not dead. You no longer live under the dominion of death. You have a new king. Verse 18, justification and life. This is the double grace, the double gift of the gospel, and it's a perfect remedy for our twofold state. In other words, think for a moment if God would have given us one of these gifts and not the other. Let's think about that for a moment. Think about, you know, uh, what if God gave us justification but not life? In other words, what if God took care of everything you've ever done in your past, wiped it clean, it's completely gone, and he didn't change you? And it's like three milliseconds before you just amass another record of death. Do you understand? If God took away your record and all of your guilt, but he didn't change you and you still don't love him. You don't care about him. You don't care about his glory. You, you're still dead. You don't have life. Think about that. That's not a gospel. That's a half gospel. Now, what about the other way? If he gave you life. But he didn't give you justification. Think about that for a moment. That you have this renewed nature. Now you care more about sin than you ever have in your entire life. Because you've got a new heart. But the problem is uh, you have this record of debt that's ready to crush you into the ground. I mean you think Pilgrim, uh, a Christian in, in Pilgrim's Progress had a burden on his back. What about a renewed sinner with no forgiveness? None. It would beat us into the ground. Our guilt. But he doesn't just give us one of these gifts. He gives us both. It's the perfect remedy for our condition. Justification and life replaces condemnation and death. Learning these two categories helps you better understand the gospel and better apply the gospel. And it's not just, hey, I know the names of these categories, but I understand them. And I want to even add another thing, that there's an order to these categories. It's not just like there are two gifts and they're both equal. 
There, there are two gifts, and there's an order to them. There's a priority in these gifts. In other words, there's a reason why the Apostle Paul says justification and life and not life and justification. And we're going to talk about that for just a moment. The literal rendering of this phrase in verse 18, the justification and life, is the justification of life. That's the literal rendering of this phrase. And that means the justification that results in life. The justification that leads to life. So even in the order of the words and the way the words are given to us, justification has this uh, uh, priority in, in these gifts. It's justification first and then life. Just like the parallel, condemnation, then death. And I want to mention several ways how that order can help you. I mean, you might not have noticed that we sang in these two categories. We sang about this today. Be for sin, the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Rock of ages. The double gift's been sitting right there the whole time. Uh, we didn't even plan that. Jake didn't even plan that. Uh, judicially, we were saved from wrath. But morally, we were cleansed from our sin. We, we, Jesus made us pure. Justification and life. The book of Romans is built around this order. I don't know if you ever noticed this. But Romans is, you know, been referred to as Paul's most expansive, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, laid out, you know, letter of his gospel. Chapters 1 through 3, or really the first half of chapter 3, is the indictment of the entire human race. That's the bad news. We're all under sin. We're all condemned. Uh, by works of the law, no human being can be right with God. And then in Romans 3.21, Paul turns the corner and he begins unpacking the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And guess what he talks about first? Justification. A right standing with God through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He does it from chapter 3 all the way through chapter 5. And then, and then he stops and he puts his pen down and there's no more to Romans. No, he keeps going. And in chapter 6, 7, and 8, the Apostle Paul begins to unpack life. Not only has the gospel given us a new record, but the gospel has given us a new nature. We have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life. And so you can't even read Romans well without these categories and without understanding this order. Helps you read the book of Romans. Even closer to home, it helps you with Christian assurance. It helps you think rightly about Christian assurance. The order of justification first, then life. Man, you get that backwards. You're going to have so much trouble. You're going to have so much trouble. Justification is first and primary. It's the ground of everything else that follows. All that transformation that follows is rooted in justification. Justification and life are both good gifts, but they're not the same, and, and they're not interchangeable. There's an order to them. So think about the differences between justification and life, or justification and sanctification. Think about the differences. And this, once you understand the differences, you understand why it's really wrong to ground your justification in your sanctification. To start with, justification is instantaneous. Instant, in a moment of time. The verdict is rendered, and for the rest of eternity, you are right with God through the work of Jesus Christ. It's, inst it's an instantaneous, uh, perfect uh, uh, verdict. In, in the sense that in 10 million years from now, you will not be more justified than you are right now as a Christian. I mean, let that fry your brain for a minute. There is no, there's no even category for being more justified. Why? Because you are wearing the righteous record of Jesus Christ. You don't improve upon that. It's perfect. The obedience of one man. But the outworking of this newness of life is not instantaneous. It's progressive. And it's not perfect. And this life is not completed until we are glorified. 
Now, I don't mean, you know, uh, I do mean that there was a definite point in time when you were dead and you took your first spiritual breath and now you're alive. But every Christian in the room knows that when you were born again, you weren't made perfect. That principle of life works its way out through the entire Christian life until we see Jesus face to face. And so there's a progressive nature to this second category that's not the case in this judicial category. And because it's progressive and not completed, this is why it can never serve as the ground of your assurance before God. Think about that. If you want to know that you know that you know that you're right with God, then the foundation that you stand on, it has to be certain, fixed, eternal, and perfect. It can't float up and down. Monday I had a good day. Tuesday I had a bad day. Wednesday I had a good day again. Thursday bad day. In other words, if you get the grounds for justification, the grounds for your assurance wrong, the best you can hope for in your entire Christian life is that your assurance rises and falls with your sanctification. That's not the order. The order is justification, then life. There's a logical priority to justification. Justification produces life, not the other way around. And it always produces life. It always produces life. This is why the Bible can give us obedience tests in Scripture that we would, you know, uh, by, by markers of obedience, we can know that we're in the faith. This is why that's true. is because justification always produces life. But here's the thing. The life that justification produces can never be the ground of justification. Can never be the ground of justification. Otherwise, your assurance can only be as perfect as your sanctification. And once you start thinking backwards like that, that's assurance suicide. It obliterates the, the precious gift that Jesus has given to his church of a certainty of the forgiveness of sin. Uh, Robert Murray McChain had a famous uh, uh, encouragement where he, uh, you know, he basically said this, for every look you take at yourself as a Christian, take 10 looks to Jesus Christ. In other words, it's not wrong to see those, you know, obedience markers in Scripture and to examine yourself. That's not wrong. McChain says, but every time you do that, you take 10 looks to the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, don't you get stuck in a pattern of spiritual navel-gazing, looking at yourself your entire Christian life. Don't you do that. Get your eyes on Jesus. So that needs to be the rhythm, you know, in, in the rhythms of the Christian life and the very bedrock of Christian assurance that you're constantly looking outside of yourself for that alien righteousness. The obedience of another, the obedience of one man, not my obedience, but the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ. And so today, your assurance is dependent on the obedience of another. Tomorrow, your assurance will be dependent on not your own obedience, but on the obedience of another. And the next day and 10,000 days after that and a million days after that, it'll never change. You're standing with God and your assurance before God will always be on the basis of the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ. Romans 8 says it this way. Romans 8, 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And then he answers, it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? And what I want you to see is when those questions are being asked in the human soul, the scriptures send you outside. God justified you. Who died? Who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Get your eyes off yourself and get them on the Lord Jesus. That alien righteousness, that work of the one man, that perfect obedience you got to learn that. Assurance reaches for a solid ground outside of itself. Jesus died. Jesus was raised. Jesus is praying for me. 
Last thing I'll mention is that this order of justification and life, it helps us to live obedient Christian lives. Obedient Christian lives. You know, part of growing as a Christian is becoming more and more aware that you possess life in Christ. That's one of the marks of spiritual maturity, that you just take God at his word, and when God's word says you've been raised to newness of life, you just believe it more and more and more progressively as you're more conformed to the image of Jesus. Part of living a gospel-centered life is trusting God, not only for pardon, but for power. Trusting in Jesus, not only for righteousness, but also for strength to live the Christian life. And sometimes that, that word gospel-centered can be a really slippery word. And sometimes the only thing people mean by that is justification. And justification is first, and justification is glorious, and it always has to be that way. But there's two gifts, not one. It's justification and life. Life is part of the gospel. Jesus does not leave us dead in our sins. He gives us newness of life. And we need to learn to trust him for the grace that not only cancels sin, but breaks the power of sin. The resurrection power of Jesus Christ. He gives justification and life. God really does call you to live a life that you do not have the ability to live in your own strength. And I hope you know that. And therefore... Part of the design of the Christian life is that you would be perpetually in this place as a Christian where you're called to live not only on the righteousness of another, but also on the strength of another. In other words, just like you are looking outside of yourself for this alien righteousness over and over again in the rhythms of the Christian life, you're looking outside of yourself for you know, power that I don't have, power from God to keep God's Commandments. I'll give you an example of this. In Romans 8, verse 13, and Greg prayed, alluded to this in his prayer earlier. Paul doesn't just say, put to death the deeds of the body. I mean, he does say that, but he doesn't just say that. Okay? So think about the difference in these two phrases. Put to death the deeds of the body. But what Romans 8, 13 actually says is, by the Spirit... Put to death the deeds of the body. One version will make you want to have a panic attack. Like, what do you mean? I can't do that. I can't put to death the deeds of the body. But the other is gospel that you have been gifted in grace by Jesus Christ through the indwelling spirit. Look how much power we have as Christians to please God, to live in obedience to God by the spirit put to death deeds of the body. We're called to live on the strength of another. To be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. And God is glorified when we do this. Just like God is glorified when we look outside of ourselves and to the Lord Jesus as our righteousness. That glorifies Jesus Christ. He's the righteous one. And in the same way, every time we look outside of ourselves for strength in Jesus Christ, it glorifies him as the mighty one. He gets all the glory and we get None. First Peter 4 says it this way. Whoever serves, let him serve in the strength that God supplies. Let him serve in the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And so know this, brothers and sisters, that one of the things that God has determined is to make a name for himself... As the only source of righteousness and life. You can't find it anywhere else. This is part of the plan. And he says it this way in Isaiah 45 verse 24. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me. Our righteousness and strength. Only in him. And brothers and sisters I want to exhort us to believe that. About the gospel. That we only find righteousness and strength in Jesus Christ. I want to exhort us to progressively trust God. To be more and more fully convinced that he is the source of my righteousness. He is the source of my strength. And I want to encourage us to preach that gospel. That is really good news. In a world of condemnation and death. 
We're the only ones that can offer righteousness and life through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is good news. The best of news. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word today. And God, we pray that you would cause it to bear fruit. Lord, we pray that you would raise our affections for the Lord Jesus today. God, we pray that you would comfort us with the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would encourage your people with the gospel. God, thank you. Lord, we tell you thank you for your grace. Thank you for your precious gift. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord. Alright, we come now to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And as we mention each week, this time is exclusively for believers. And that's not because God doesn't love unbelievers. This is because the Lord's Supper is a celebration of salvation. That salvation that we just uh, unpacked in Romans 5. And so if you are here this morning and you are not trusting in Jesus Christ... Or if you're here today and you haven't been baptized as a Christian, this is the only part of our service that we ask you not to participate in. When we uh, drink the cup and we eat the bread in just a few moments, that if that's you, that you would simply allow the bread and the cup to pass you by this morning and use this time meditating and contemplating the gospel of Jesus Christ. To the church, I, wanna, I want us to focus back on these words you know, in Romans 5 that we just read together that we just unpacked, uh, especially these gifts of the gospel of grace, justification and life, justification and life. Think about the joy that would flood your soul if somebody told you that you had, you know, a billion dollars and a million years to live to spend it. You know, like the fittingness of those things going together. Like a billion dollars wouldn't do you very, very much good if you die, you know, on your way home. But think of the fittingness of these gifts. I mean, how much better to you, do you make the gospel than I'm going to take your record and I'm going to plunge it into, uh, into the sea. I'm going to tread over it like a mighty warrior. It'll never be seen again. It'll never be remembered. Your sins are gone through the work of Jesus Christ's justification. And I'm going to give you life. I'm going to restore all that's broken, all that sin broke in this world. I'm going to restore it with grace. I'm going to, I'm going to begin to, to, to give you life as life was meant to be, life for the glory of God, life and knowing God, justification and life. This is the gospel. The grace of God has been lavished on the church. And, and one of my favorite things to think about at the, at the Lord's Supper is in all the church. In other words, it's not a time, you know, where we watch, you know, pastors partake or, you know, some spiritual uh, um, delta force, you know, of the church, you know, partake. Jesus says, drink of it, all of you. In other words, that everybody who is united to Jesus Christ by faith has been given a common standing, a common salvation. They've, they've been given the same gifts, the same grace, justification and Life. There's no such thing as a Christian who hasn't had their record uh, 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 of sin uh, broken by the work of Jesus. There's no such thing as a Christian who's still dead in their sins. We've all been given justification and life. Because Jesus is a great mediator. Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. Jesus triumphed where Adam sinned. And so, brothers and sisters, let's, let's give praise to God for these gifts today. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gave us that command to do this in remembrance of me. And he gave us the cup, and he gave us the bread, and he calls us to remember his broken body and his shed blood and the grace that comes to us through the costly obedience of Jesus Christ. And so let's give him praise. As the brothers come now and serve us, I want you to be encouraged. Use this time to meditate on the gospel. That for every Christian, there was once condemnation and death. But because of Jesus, there is now forever righteousness and life. Let's meditate on that. And once everyone is served, we'll take the Lord's Supper together.
right, let's pray. Lord, we come today in Jesus' name, Lord, and we ask for your help. Lord, help us even now to remember Christ rightly. God, please help us. Lord, help us even now to look outside of ourselves. God, our brother prayed for the weak in our midst earlier. Lord, we pray again, God, cast every soul, cast the gaze of every soul unto Christ, even now, Lord. God, remind us in this moment that everything good that we have comes from you, Lord Jesus. You are our righteousness. You are our wisdom. You are our strength. We have no good apart from you, Lord Jesus. And we bless your holy name for great salvation. Lord, and we take our place with that heavenly gathering, Lord. And we say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy are you, Lord Jesus. We can never repay you. God, we lift up thankful hearts. God, thank you for your grace. God, we pray that every soul would be encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to eat and drink the words of Jesus in Matthew 26. Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Praise his name. All right, let's sing the doxology to our God. Praise God from